Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we begin to read through the tale, The White Snake, and to discover what it can teach us about the creative challenges of doing our inner work. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to take a deeper look at the Grimm's fairy tale called The White Snake, a portion of which I looked at in episode one, What is the Symbolic Life? And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to work through the tale section by section. First, I'll read a section of the story, and then I'll dig into some of the symbols of that section to to get a better sense of their psychological meaning. It's probably worth taking a moment before we start just to address the question of why. Why look at fairy tales? Why spend time reading, studying fairy tales? What's the value of doing an interpretive exploration of a tale like this? Well, from a Jungian point of view, Any creative work, stories, poetry, art, religion, philosophy, anything like that is an expression of the psyche, and therefore it conveys information about the psyche and about the general working of our inner lives. We start with the premise that psychological life is not random. It manifests in recognizable patterns and dynamics, and these shape and structure unconsciously not only our behaviors, but our expressive life as well. And within any creative work, these universal or archetypal patterns can be discerned, even if somewhat faintly. And fairy tales many of which are thousands of years old, are believed to show these patterns more clearly than other forms, like myths or religious stories. Fairy tales are kind of like stripped-down myths. And Marie-Louise von Franz, who in the Jungian world is probably considered the preeminent expert on fairy tales and their psychological interpretation, says this about them. She says, Fairy tales are the purest and simplest expression of the collective unconscious psychic processes. They represent the archetypes in their simplest, barest, and most concise form. So fairy tales are are kind of like maps. 
right? They show some of the features and relationships within a particular psychological geography. And having an understanding of that geography helps locate us where we are in relationship to it. And in the case of the white snake, the fairy tale we're going to look at here, you could look at it from many different angles. But the particular geography that I want to explore is that of the subject of this podcast, the symbolic life. And as it turns out, this tale has a lot to tell us about what it means to engage in our inner work, what it means to engage in our psychological and spiritual growth, the challenges and the gifts that come with trying to live a symbolic life. So, with that background, here's the first part, the first section of the story. A long time ago, there lived a king who was famed for his wisdom through all the land. Nothing was hidden from him, and it seemed as if news of the most secret things was brought to him through the air. But he had a strange custom. Every day after dinner, when the table was cleared and no one else was present, a trusty servant had to bring him one more dish. It was covered, however, and even the servant did not know what was in it. Neither did anyone know, for the king never took off the cover to eat of it until he was quite alone. This had gone on for a long time when one day the servant who took away the dish was overcome with such curiosity that he could not help carrying the dish into his own room. When he'd carefully locked the door, he lifted up the cover and saw a white snake lying on the dish. But when he saw it, he could not deny himself the pleasure of tasting it. So he cut off a little bit and put it into his mouth. No sooner had it touched his tongue than he heard a strange whispering of little voices outside the window. He went and listened, and then noticed that it was the sparrows who were chattering together and telling one another of all kinds of things which they had seen in the fields and woods. Eating the snake had given him the power of understanding the language of animals. Now, when I looked at this section of the fairy tale back in that very first episode of this podcast, I focused on the element of wisdom and the need for solitude, together with what I called a practice or a discipline of deep listening. And that was part of the work of aligning oneself with that wisdom. And I won't repeat what I said there. But all of that sits in the background of what I want to talk about here. And you can go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more about that perspective on the story or if you need a refresher on that. 
But in this pass through the tale, I want to focus on the figure of the servant. I want to look at his development through the story and how we can understand him as an image of a particular kind of attitude or relationship to the psyche and to our own inner work. And of course, the most obvious aspect of this figure, at least at the beginning of the story, is the quality of his being a servant. Whatever form the symbolic life takes in each of our individual lives, if we are to grow in it, we must take up an attitude of service toward it. The symbolic life begins when, out of the myriad possibilities of life, something captures our attention, something speaks to the heart, and in one form or another, it calls to us over and above anything else. Now, there's no one single way in which that occurs, right? For each of us, says Ralph Waldo Emerson, there is a reality, a fit place, and congenial duties. For each of us, there is a reality, a fit place, and congenial duties. Now, it could be the world of art. It could be the beauties of nature. Or it could be the particular allure of Jungian psychology. It doesn't really matter, but it's generally something that suggests that here, meaning and wisdom can be found. And it's this experience, that sense of meaning and wisdom, that's represented by the wise king at the beginning of the story, that, that calls the servant into service. And service, of course, means dedication. It means a kind of devotion. It means working and learning. Any skill takes practice, whether we're learning to play the piano or perform a complicated statistical analysis of research data. Whatever the endeavor, we have to learn the rules, right? We have to learn the foundations and we have to train ourselves in them until they become second nature. And the inner life is no different. In this case, in the case of the inner life, it means learning to direct attention to the activity of the imagination and making a habit of it. Making time every day, for instance, to paint or to write poetry or becoming familiar with the local woods by regularly going out and wandering through the trails or, or training yourself to wake up just enough at 3 a.m., to jot down your dreams. And in all of this, it means paying attention to what you pay attention to, noticing what you notice, getting and staying curious about just what it is in your own area of interest that speaks to you, what presents itself to you on the field of your awareness. What is it, you might ask at these times, that seems to be seeking you? 
Now, eventually, says the story, the servant is overcome with curiosity, so much so that he could not help taking the secret dish into his own room and getting a taste of it for himself. And this is when everything changes. And there's a moment in any kind of intensive study that we go through when suddenly everything gels, right? Everything comes together. A breakthrough happens. And just like that, we get it, right? We get it in a new way. What before took effort and concentration and learning now has a kind of flow to it. It has a a new vitality, a new energy. The Jungian analyst D. Stevenson Bond puts it this way. He says, the imagination is a vehicle of relationship to what lies on the other side of imagination, autonomous psyche. It's as if, as we lay hold of our images, all of a sudden, one day, something lays hold of us. And this is what it means when the servant discovers that he has the power to hear the language of animals. He eats the white snake, and immediately the wisdom is inside him. All his work and service have become metabolized into his very being. And then from here, the story continues. So here's the next section. Now it so happened that on this very day, the queen lost her most beautiful ring. And suspicion of having stolen it fell upon the trusty servant, who was allowed to go everywhere. The king ordered the man to be brought before him and threatened with angry words that unless he could, before the morrow, point out the thief, he himself should be looked upon as guilty and executed. In vain, he declared his innocence. He was dismissed with no better answer. In his trouble and fear, he went down into the courtyard and took thought how to help himself out of his trouble. Now, some ducks were sitting together quietly by a brook and taking their rest. And whilst they were making their feathers smooth with their bills, they were having a confidential conversation together. The servant stood by and listened. They were telling one another of all the places that they had been waddling about all the morning and what good food they had found. One said in a pitiful tone, something lies heavy on my stomach. As I was eating in haste, I swallowed a ring which lay under the queen's window. The servant at once seized her by the neck, carried her to the kitchen, and said to the cook, Here is a fine duck. Pray, kill her. Yes, said the cook, and weighed her in his hand. 
She has spared no trouble to fatten herself and has been waiting to be roasted long enough. So he cut off her head, and as she was being dressed for the spit, the queen's ring was found inside her. The servant could now easily prove his innocence, and the king, to make amends for the wrong, allowed him to ask a favor and promised him the best place in the court that he could wish for. The servant refused everything and only asked for a horse and some money for traveling, as he had a mind to see the world and go about a little. There's a saying in the Gospel of Thomas, an ancient Christian wisdom text that's not included in the Bible, that says, If you are searching, you must not stop until you find. When you find, however, you will become troubled. Now, we might imagine that that moment of creative breakthrough that I talked about, what the story calls learning to hear the language of the animals, would be a good thing. And it is. But the paradox of creativity, of course, is that the emergence of a new possibility, the emergence of a new order, is disruptive to and often involves the breaking down of the old order. And so the very day of the servant's breakthrough, we learn that the queen has lost her ring. The ring, of course, is a symbol of wholeness and order. And the loss of the ring signals a disruption of that order, a loss of that wholeness. And the servant is suspected of being responsible for the loss because, really, in a sense, he is. The moment when we awaken to our potential, something has to change. Not only in us, but in the world that we inhabit. And this can be disruptive. We tend to pull away from that. But potential that only stays as potential becomes poison. It has to be translated into a lived actuality. And this involves some risk. So it's tempting to want to live in that stage of potential and to draw back from taking definite steps to the realization of that potential in life. And every one of us, I'm sure, has the, the experience of clinging to something too long, staying in a situation that we've already started to outgrow well past the point when we should have moved on. Habit, laziness, fear, self-doubt, the reasons to avoid change and growth are legion. Instead, we tend to maybe go over the same old territory again and again. We remain a 
perpetual student, or we turn to something entirely new and we keep trying new things because we're attached to the experience of novelty and kind of wary of the hard slog that might go with obtaining mastery. Still, such a situation can't be sustained indefinitely. Life finds a way to get things moving, even if we don't. And often, unfortunately, in the form of a crisis or a disruption. What we don't engage in constructively may very well visit our lives destructively. And the accusation of the king in the story forces a change in the life of the servant. From now on, he is no longer going to serve the old order, but he has to start the crucial work of discovering and creating a new order. We can't be students forever. We can't stay stuck in the stage of being a servant to the old order. At some point, we must create. We must challenge ourselves to discover and develop our latent gifts. We must lead. And this means leaving the nest or getting kicked out of the nest. It means having to leave the bliss of the Garden of Eden and make a life in the world through hard work and struggle but through which we put our potential into practice. As the cook in the story says about the duck, it's been waiting to be roasted long enough. And at such times, so have we. It becomes time for us to let ourselves be cooked by life. And so from this point, the servant must head out into the world and develop his potential. And from this point on in the story, he'll no longer be called the servant, but he'll be known as the handsome youth. Now, in the next episode, we'll follow the next stage of this journey. We'll look at the next couple of sections of the story and we'll find out how it develops from here. But for now... Just let me offer a brief takeaway for what we've looked at so far. The image of the new development that's immediately threatened is a common one in myth and religion and fairy tales. Whatever is born in us is fragile and it's vulnerable and it needs our care and protection so that it can grow and become strong. At the same time, we have to be on the alert for things becoming rigid and stuck or fixed or stale. What's grown and become strong must always be ready to give way to the next new development, the next stage of growth. You know, it's one of the peculiarities of kings in stories and myths like this one, that 
at some point they become ill or they start to lose their power or they just become old and they need to pass the power on to the next generation. No stage of development in our lives is ever permanent. The life of the unconscious goes on and continually produces problematical situations, says Jung. But this isn't a cause for pessimism. It's merely the conditions of creativity. There is no change, he goes on, that is unconditionally valid over a long period of time. Life has always to be tackled anew. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.